Bibles once again and turn to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, and uh, this is a great uh, New Testament book, a letter written by Paul to the church at Ephesus, and uh, we've gotten through chapter 1, and tonight we're going to start chapter 2. Uh, next Sunday night, I don't think I'll continue in Ephesians. Uh, we'll take another break here, but uh, I want to talk about uh, revival next Sunday night. I believe that's the plan. And uh, then we're going to have our meetings with uh, Brother Gilmore. And I trust uh, that'll be a blessing as we meet with him. And then once the meetings are gone, we'll come back to Ephesians. And uh, we'll continue there on. But tonight, we're going to look at new life in Christ. And Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 uh, through 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. We'll get uh, to that in a moment. You know, some people simply cannot understand why people don't have to do something to become a Christian. Got to do something, right? I mean, there's something I have to do in order to be a Christian. Uh, there are those who think that once a person is a Christian, they can do anything then they want to, and still go to heaven. Well, they may still go to heaven, but the Bible doesn't say you can do anything you want to. Uh, actually, both ideas really need the light of Scripture shed upon them. And so, the Bible says here in Ephesians. And we'll be in the section here where we have our very familiar verses of verses 8 and 9. And this tells us here that our works cannot obtain salvation for us. It's all by God's grace. But it's also not true that a person can experience the grace of God and stay the same. You really experience the grace of God upon your life. You cannot be the same person that you were before you got saved. Grace does more than just give us a fire escape from hell. It also changes a person on the inside, making us different kinds of persons than we were before. And you see, a full understanding of security of the believer begins with understanding the grace of God. Now, while some people have an inadequate understanding of it, they confuse it with license. And others cannot grasp the fact that God is the one who does the saving apart from any human merit. If we cannot save ourselves in the first place, then we cannot keep ourselves. And so the grace of God is a powerful force that only bestows favor upon men in giving them God's gift of salvation. But it also gives us power to cope with our problems, to forgive our enemies. Uh, to resist temptation and to be a successful Christian, a victorious Christian. Now this chapter begins with a little word, and. It says, and. It's actually a continuation of the first chapter. Now it's not the same sentence, but uh, we had a long sentence in chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. It's all one sentence, but 
It's actually continuing the thought of the first chapter. Paul's been talking about the tremendous power that raised Jesus from the dead. We shall see this power is is the same power that makes us when we are dead in trespasses and sins and makes us alive in Christ, and that takes power. It takes resurrection power. It's the power that so many of God's children want to experience. Francis Ridley Havergill writer of many hymns said it this way, Oh, let me know the power of the resurrection. Oh, let me show thy risen life in calm and clear reflection. Oh, let me give out of the gifts that freely, thou freely gavest. Oh, let me live with life abundantly because thou livest. Now, I think that God is rather reluctant about letting man have power It's easy to see why. You know, centuries have gone by with nobody knew anything about nuclear power, did they? And so God, you know, is probably a little reluctant about giving us power, and then man discovers nuclear power and it changed the world, and we still are fighting about that today. Whether it be in a in a diplomatic, so-called diplomatic way, or actually fighting uh, wars to prevent it from happening. But what did it do to the world? Did all this power make it a wonderful place to live? Certainly not. The world is actually a frightful place in which we live. It's as frightful as ever because man has power to destroy the world. Man is dangerous today. There are those who would release that nuclear power today or tomorrow if they thought they could get by them. Man is dangerous with the use of physical power. And yet the power of God, which is spoken of here in this letter, this epistle of Paul, speaks of is the power that God will release in the life of one who will turn to Jesus Christ. Lift that person out of the spiritual death and the spiritual life. And that is what we see here in the first part of chapter 2. We'll see it deals with two main areas. First of all, our wicked past or our condition. Our wicked past, our condition. Now in the first or the last half of chapter 1, we saw where Paul mentioned several things for which he had been praying Uh, in behalf of the Ephesians. He prayed that they might know God. In verse 17. That they may know the hope of His calling. In verse 18. That they may know the glorious riches of His inheritance in the saints. Again in verse 18. And that they might know the exceeding greatness of God's power toward believers. That's verse 19. In order that we might appreciate more fully the grace and power that's at work in our conversion, we first want to focus on the description of our condition before we got saved. For we were not likely to appreciate, we would not likely appreciate the present wealth unless we fully appreciate our former poverty. Without a proper appreciation of our present wealth, we will not likely heed the exhortations that are going to be coming later in this epistle. 
want you to notice the description of our our condition here. First of all, we're dead. We were dead in trespasses and sins. Look at verse one. And you have he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So as a part of his description of our past, before we met Christ, God says we were dead. Now, that's probably hard for some people to believe. How can a person walk around, live, breathe, and still be dead? Maybe it's hard to understand because we don't fully realize what the word dead really means. You know, most of the time we think of it's just an absolute end, termination. The Bible definition is more like separation than termination. It's easy to understand if we think of God as the source and sustainer of life. John 14, 6, John, uh, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. God created man in the beginning, gave him life. Later, man sinned and was driven from the Garden of Eden in the presence of God. Man became separated from God by the barrier of sin. And to be separated from God is to be separated from life and spiritual death. The other alternative means to be united or reconciled to God. That's the thought behind the word quicken. The word behind quicken. To quicken means to make alive. You know, small words make a big difference. We started this chapter out with the word and. Some people have the attitude, don't sweat the small stuff. But it is the small stuff that often can make a big difference. For example, there's a little preposition here, in, I-N, is very important. We were dead in trespasses and sins. But the believer is now alive in Christ. That's what we saw in chapter 1. Said how important that was, that phrase, in Christ. We need to remember these prepositions in the, in the first few verses when we see the contrast to the ones we see in verse 6. But now in verse 1, there are two persons in view. There's you and there's he. The you describes someone who was dead, who needed to be quickened or be made alive. The he describes the only one who could do that. And that's God. A dead man cannot bring himself to life. It has to be done by someone else. That's why man is totally dependent upon God. We are dead. Now, did we kill ourselves? No. That'd be a silly question. Of course not, because this death is a condition we inherited, and that it is an inheritance that we would just as well have done without. But notice what God says about it in Romans 5.12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men that all have sinned. 
Genetically, we are present in Adam. The human race, the whole human race, was there in his in his re reproductive cells. And genetically, the human re race died spiritually with him. No matter how many centuries have come and gone since, we are born spiritually dead. There's no uh, time is no determining factor in dealing uh, with, with God's dealing with men. Each of us was born into spiritual death or separation from God. In order for us to return to God, that that condition had to be remedied. Someone once asked, uh, was asked to define a cemetery. That a cemetery is a place where dead live. A place where the dead live. Well, that describes our world, really. A trespass is what Adam did. He stepped over God's bounds. Sin means to miss the mark. We just don't come up to God's standard. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's our condition. Dead in trespasses and sins, energized by Satan, and that is the description of us before we are saved. And every unsaved man walking around this world, that leads us to verse 2. And the second thing we see about our condition, and that is walking with the world and the devil. Look again at verse 2. Wherein, in time past, you walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Talking about our walk, the paths we we choose. The Bible tells us actually two things about our walk in verse two, and each is designated by the word according. We walk according to the course of this world and according to the prince of the power of the air. Notice first of all the course. The course. Instead of God's leadership, we made our decisions based upon the pull of those around us in this world. And a description of this is more fully explained in chapter 4, verse 17 through 20. Let's just turn there for a moment. Chapter 4, verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that he henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. Alienated from the life of God because of ignorance and the hardened heart those are in the world. And they walk in the vanity, the emptiness, the futility of their mind. They have their understanding darkened. They are blind to spiritual things. They're being they're past feeling those in the world, giving themselves over to licentiousness and working all uncleanness with greediness. Well, that sounds pretty much like our present generation, does it not? Scriptures warn us over and over not to listen to the counsel of an unbelieving world. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of 
of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. That's exactly what we did when we, before we were saved. And if you're not saved this evening, that's what you're doing. Because you are spiritually dead. So you have the course. And secondly, you have the prince. The prince, of course, is Satan. And as far as his influence is concerned, it is shown in two spheres. First of all, it's in the air. Speaks of places of supernatural, spiritual power and authority. And secondly, it's in the children of disobedience, in a place in which he energizes people from within. Satanic power is both around and within an unbelieving race of men. We often make our decisions and choose our paths based on his influence. Now, remember again, Satan is not omnipresent, but he sure has a lot of influence in this world. And we make decisions. We choose our paths based on His influence around us. So, first of all, we were dead in trespasses and sins. And then we're walking with the world and the devil. Thirdly, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind. Look again at verse 3. Among whom also we all have our conversation in time past in the lust of our flesh fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. In our conversation, that is, we know it to be uh, our manner of life. We are influenced by the lust of our sinful nature, the desires, the wills of our corrupt thought life. You know, whenever a decision has to be made about our manner of life, I think only rarely especially before we were saved, we didn't think, well, what does God want me to do? Before you were saved, you thought, oh, I wonder if God would be okay with this. He didn't think about that. No, you just simply did whatever your appetite wanted. If it felt good, you did it. Had we been energized by the Holy Spirit of God, we would have made our decisions differently. But spiritual death had separated us from Him, and our decisions were made on a natural, unbelieving level, and as a result, we're identified as children of wrath. Now that all sounds pretty dark and hopeless. It would have been if God had not been interested, letting us go our headlong way into oblivion, but God is not content to see us remain in such a state. And as we continue through this chapter, we'll see why. We've looked at our wicked past and our condition, but I want you to notice now God's wonderful provision, our salvation. God's wonderful provision. And verse 4 starts with another little word. Notice it there? Remember, small words are important. It begins with the word, but. But God. What a wonderful, reassuring word. Now these are the hope-kindling words that are used to start God's description through the pen of Paul of what he did about our sad condition. And I want you to notice that it involves six things. And I'm taking the first two in reverse order, which 
Which came first, the chicken or the egg? You know, that's a good question. So we're taking this in reverse order. But God, did God's love come first, or did God's mercy come first? Well, this verse starts with the mercy, but I'm going to put God's love first in our list. So you can see there, letter A is the great love of God. You know, that's the beginning point of salvation from this and all else flows. What mercy, grace, etc. that God shows mankind is founded upon the fact that God had a great love for us. And that's not anywhere said better than in John 3.16. For God so loved the world. This love is not because of who we are, but who God is. God did not love us because we are lovable, but because God is loving. As John wrote in the effort to inspire his brethren to love one another, God is love, and that moved him to offer his son. 1 John 4, verses 7 through 10. Beloved, let us love one another, for the love, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that he, we might live through Him. Herein is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Can be said any plainer than that. God loved us. And He responded graciously to our need, being willing to withhold judgment from us at the cost of His Son's death. This is great love. Then secondly, we'll look at the rich mercy of God. The mercy of God. What, a, what this word mercy means. It's a, a word that um, would mean the outward manifestation of pity. According to one Bible dictionary. Mercy then is compassion that one has for those in trouble. God's great love makes him rich in mercy. His great love for sinners enables God to be filled with compassion toward them. The riches of his mercy seek to reach out to all who will accept it. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3 and 4. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I read about a poor woman who lived in the slums of London. She was invited to go with a group of people for a holiday near the ocean. And she had never seen the ocean before. And when she saw it, she burst into tears. Those around her thought it was strange that she would cry when they had such a lovely holiday that had been given to her. And they asked her, why in the world are you crying? And pointing out to the ocean, she answered, this is the only thing I've ever seen that there is enough of. The only thing I've ever seen that there's enough of. I'm going to go look at the ocean this week. So it just beat your heart out. (laughs) 
The only thing that I've seen there's enough of. You know, that's a description of God's mercy. It's the only thing that there is. The oceans of mercy, there's enough of it and plenty to go around. Now, as we come to verse 5, we find that this is where grace enters in. Okay, verse 5. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved. So, we find here, thirdly, wonderful provision being made alive with Christ. Again, we have this word quickened, which means we've been made alive, and of course this is where we see the grace of God, because this is something that God did for us that we could not do for ourselves, and we did not deserve. We were dead in our sins, but by His grace He quickened us and made us alive. He gave us spiritual life. Look at verse 6. And hath raised us up together and have made and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice that's the fourth thing, being raised up together with Christ. God was not content to merely raise us from the dead. He raised us all the way to where we are sitting together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Say, we're not quite there yet, are we? Not physically, but spiritually, you've been placed at His side. Because of His grace, we can become a part of a, a new heavenly order of redeemed sinners who even now as we're vitally connected to the Lord Jesus as he is seated in the heavenlies what a difference grace makes and it's not only for this age verse 7 tells us that his grace will be operating in our behalf in the ages to come it says in verse 7 in that, in the, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. God's kindness will not diminish but continue to be dynamic in our behalf through an unending existence. And that brings us to the fifth area of involvement and to those classic and oft-quoted verses Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not of works, lest any man should boast. So here we have faith and not works. He tells us, tells us how we are saved. It's by grace. And that should settle the question forever. Once we understand what grace is and how God bestows it upon our, on our behalf, the questions of how men are saved is firmly answered. He also tells us about our part in the transaction is through faith. The subject of salvation in the channel is not merit, it's not works, it's not intelligence, it's not standing, it's faith, pure and simple. The definition of faith is trust. We simply trust God that what He is saying is true and that He'll deliver what He promises. And then as if to dispel any further doubts about the merit, uh, any merit man may have in this transaction, Paul says, and that not of ourselves. Being dead, we simply do not have anything to do with it. 
It's all we do is receive the gift. The gift of God. Well, we can't we claim anything? Surely there's something I can say I did. There's nothing I can take credit for. Nothing. Maybe some little work. Again, the answer comes back. Not of works, lest any man should boast. There you have it. It's God's firm answer to anyone who thinks man can put forth any kind of effort, physical, moral, mental, to obtain his salvation. The word gift here stands out pure and untarnished by anything that we might want to do to cheapen it by paying the giver of anything. And if we could work for what we've gotten from from God, we would say, look what I did. We would boast about it. How do I know? Because those who claim to be saved by works, they say things proudly like, well, if I do enough good works, God will surely let me go to heaven. If I give enough money, God will surely let me come to heaven. If I do enough enough good works, if I get baptized, if I get confirmed, catechized, or attend enough masses, then surely God will look favorably upon me and let me into heaven. Read a story this week about how the Pope was meeting with some children. And there was a an opportunity for them to come to a microphone and ask the Pope some questions. A little boy came up and very timid. He just couldn't get it out. He couldn't he broke down and cried. So they encouraged the little boy to go up to the Pope and he leaned on the Pope's shoulder and whispered to him. Later on, the Pope shared what the boy had said. He said, I have permission from the boy to share these things. The boy's father had died. And he wanted to know because daddy was in heaven. You know what the Pope said? Well, he was a non-believer, but he was a good man. He had all four of his children baptized. He was a good man. And God's like a father. And God is good, so your father is a good man. He'll be in here. There was a sad commentary on what is being promoted by that church and its leader. I do enough good works. If I'm good enough, God will let me into heaven. No, it says here, by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. See, all that works and baptism and confirmed. Uh, and attendance to services and so forth and how God would surely look favorably upon a person that's pride that's all it is, it's pride well finally the provision of salvation involves being created for good works verse 10 reminds us that any acceptable work we can do is empowered by him we are his workmanship 
God works, our good works are heavily involved, but they are the result, not the means of our being saved. This new creation made possible by grace is unto good works. Those who think salvation makes no difference in a person's life do not have an adequate understanding of the grace of God. He not only changes our standing before Him, but He changes our hearts as well. Notice this is a part of God's plan, His predestination, His predetermination for those who receive the gift of salvation. He has before ordained that we should walk in them. It says there, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God have before ordained that we should walk in them. When we receive that gift, His predetermination is that we are to walk in those good works. God's perfect plan was to redeem, to raise, and empower a holy people who will walk and talk and live the way the Savior did. And so let me ask her, uh, close with an illustration I think that answers the question are we saved by God's love or by God's grace a preacher told of a young fellow back in the 70's that's kind of my era I remember the 70's when I was going to school here's a young fellow that was back in the 70's no doubt he was a part of the hippie movement or the Jesus movement that was popular back then. I know some of you might remember that. This fellow went around with a funny hat that said, Love, 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 written all over. He had love written all over his pants and even on his shoes. He was asked, Why in the world do you have love written all over you? He said, Hey, man. That's the way they talk right there. Hey, man. God is love. The preacher said to him, I agree with you. Nothing could be truer. The young fellow added, God saves us by his love. The preacher said, I don't agree with that. God doesn't save us by his love. Can you give me a verse where he says he saves us by his love? The young man scratched his head and they thought for a while and then admitted, well, he couldn't think of a verse. Well, he said, if God doesn't save us by his love, then how does he save us? Preacher said, I'm glad you asked. Because the Bible says, by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. God saves us by his grace. The young man wanted to know the difference. And this is how it was explained to him. You know, God loves you. Don't lose sight of that. God does love all of us. But God cannot, on the basis of His love, open a back door of heaven and slip us in the, under cover of darkness. He can't let the bars of heaven, at, uh, down the bars of heaven at the front door and bring us in because of His love. God is also light. God is a moral ruler of this universe. God is righteous. God is holy and He is good. And that adds up to one thing. God cannot do things that are wrong, and that wrong according uh, that is wrong according to His standard. And so God couldn't save us by love. We can say that love put Him on the uh, 
in a bind, he could love without being able to save. The preacher went on to say, I thought you would have quoted John 3.16 to me. But let's just look at that verse. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, does it say, God so loved the world that he saved the world? No. That's exactly what it does not say. God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten Son. You see, God couldn't save the world by love because he goes, it goes on to say that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. You and I are going to perish. We're lost sinners and God still loves us, but the love of God can't bring us to heaven. God had to provide a salvation. He had to have a payment for the penalty of our sins. And the love of our God of love can reach out his hands to the lost word set world and say, if you will believe in my son because he died for you, if you will come to him on that basis, then I can save you. God doesn't save us by his love. He saves us by his grace. So it is grace through faith that the children of wrath become the children of God. It is by grace through faith that the sons of disobedience can receive the adoption of sons of God. And we can be accepted of God. And because of salvation through faith, yes, it involves God's great love, God's rich mercy, and God making us alive together with Christ, and God raising us up together with Christ to sit with Him in heavenly places. And an obedient faith that trusts in God's workmanship, not our workmanship, but His workmanship, and a new creature that is diligent to do some good works for the glory of God. What a wonderful provision for an undeserving people like you and me. Thank God for His provision of salvation. And we can have a new life in Christ. I know it's been a familiar passage of Scripture, perhaps. And many of you use verses 8 and 9 as you witness to people, I'm sure. But again, the reason why we're going through this book is that we can be reminded of what we have in Christ and it ought to make a difference in the way we live and the way we live with each other. And so I trust we can know what God has done for us and uh, it will be a blessing to us. Father in heaven, 